0: Welcome to the Fair Talks Podcast, where we educate everyday people for extraordinary change. I'm your host, Alicia Chan, Executive Director of Fair Trade LA, a community of business members, nonprofits, and fair trade enthusiasts driving proactive, sustainable solutions for a fairer world. I'm also a social entrepreneur with a passion for ending poverty and creating dignified jobs. Together, we'll explore how Fairtrade changes lives and communities and what we can do to address some of the world's biggest problems right in our own homes. Let's dive in. Fair Talks is brought to you by Fairtrade USA, the organization that brings you the Fairtrade certified label. Fairtrade USA is committed to building an innovative model of responsible business, conscious consumerism, and shared value to eliminate poverty and enable sustainable development for farmers, workers, their families, and communities around the world. Fashion Revolution Week happens every year in the week surrounding April 24th, which marks the anniversary of the 2013 Rana Plaza Collapse. Rana Plaza was a building in Bangladesh that housed a number of garment factories manufacturing clothing for many of the biggest global fashion brands. On that day, more than 1,100 people, mostly young women, died in the collapse, and another 2,500 were injured, making it the fourth largest industrial disaster in history. They were making clothing that we put on our bodies. No one should die for fashion. You may have noticed people posting on social media around the end of April asking brands and retailers the question, who made my clothes? Citizens like you and I are speaking up and advocating for fair and safe working conditions for everyone in the fashion industry, including garment workers globally. Today, we are honored to have with us Shannon from Fashion Revolution USA to further dive into what has now become the world's largest fashion activism movement. Mobilizing citizens, brands, and policymakers through research, education, and advocacy.
1: Today, we have with us Shannon Welsh, who is the Sustainability Division Director at the Communications Agency Chapter Two, where she leads accounts for Blue Sign, Bombex, SciText, and Mass Holdings. She also currently serves as the Director of Strategic Initiatives and Creative Partnerships for Fashion Revolution USA, a global organization calling for greater transparency in the fashion industry. Shannon recently completed her Master's in Impact-Focused Business and Investing from Glasgow, Caledonian New York College in December 2020. Thank you so much for joining us, Shannon. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, and you know, we... We're entering into April, which is obviously a huge month for Fashion Revolution. Like Christmas and month. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I was thinking about how relevant this topic is because we all buy clothes. We all wear clothes. Mm-hmm. So this is something that we need to talk about because it is relevant to every single person.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's something um, one of the co-founders, Ursula de Castro, always says. It's like, if you wear clothes and you're a part of the fashion industry, and I think most people wear clothing, so yeah. yeah.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, in the world we live in, especially in Los Angeles and New York, where whenever we talk about fashion, it's always about the latest trends and all the glamorous things. But to get us started, I was wondering if you could shed some light into the dark side of fashion, the issues with the fashion industry.
2: Yeah, sure. So there's a like couple of events that I think we can bring up and I'll start really a long time ago. And I think it was like 1911. There was a Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire that happened in New York, where, um, you know, staircases were locked um Clothing scraps were caught on fire and I think it was like 113 or some. So garment workers died in that. So that was a huge event. Obviously, this was well over 100 years ago. And I think people can remember, or hopefully, I don't know what age everyone is listening to this, but in the 1990s, you know, Nike came under attack for all the sweatshop labor where and child labor and all those things that were happening overseas, which, you know, during the, the 70s and 80s, a lot of, um, you know, outsourcing happened globally. So labor prices were a lot cheaper overseas and a a lot of um, things were starting to happen. And that kind of came to the surface um, in the 90s. And how fashion revolution started was in 2013 in Bangladesh, uh, there was the Rana Plaza factory collapse, which killed over 1,100 people. So that was the worst like garment industry Mm -hmm. catastrophe that has happened. And really, what is that, nine years ago? So understanding like we've had these issues since the industrial age, we've run into these issues in the 90s, kind of thinking, you know, even myself thinking, you know, from the 90s to up until 2013, we were taking care of human rights, you know, people were not being exploited. That was not true. So that was a big um, eye opener for me personally. Um, so we know that their safety precautions are overlooked in a lot of um, overseas manufacturing, even here in the US in LA specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's a, a law was just passed on the Government Worker Protection Act that eliminated peace rate. So peace rate is a way that you pay workers like cents pennies on every single item that they complete you know it's a lot of um, manufacturing is broken down into specific tasks so this sewing on a pocket let's say so you get paid let's say two cents for every pocket that you complete that day well even here in the U.S. let's say you know how many does that take to even get you to like a $15 minimum wage which was the loophole that a lot of garment workers were getting paid and they're only making maybe $5 an hour. So there's um, wage stuff that happens. There's forced labor. There's a lot of things that on, on those side of you know, not enough ventilation, um, working 16-hour shifts. There are, you know, in extreme cases, garment workers are locked in to the garment factories and they aren't allowed to leave. Um, so there's a lot of human rights labor issues, which, you know, fair trade is very focused mm-hmm. on. On the environmental side of things, um, it's very hard to quantify because the fashion industry overlaps with so many other industries, such as logistics, um, shipping, farming. But there's been a couple of studies that have approximated that the fashion industry accounts somewhere between 4 to 10 percent of greenhouse gas emissions. So we have a huge carbon footprint. Um, there's also a lot of issues with water usage. It takes a lot of water to grow some crops. Some crops are thirstier than others. Um, and takes a lot of water to process materials at the mills, washing them, dyeing them, then using hazardous chemicals that are then are just released back into the environment and aren't filtered out. There's deforestation, if we're talking about, you know, even leather products, obviously leather Mm -hmm. is a byproduct of, you know, the beef industry, but a lot of forests need to be cleared for room for cattle to graze. um, So that's contributing to deforestation there. There's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of issues, but maybe I'll stop there to <laughs> not to get too deep into, into one specific, but I think that, that kind of lays out, um, some yeah. of the alarm problems.
1: Yeah. It's so crazy because fashion industry is one of the biggest industries in the world because we all wear clothing, right? Mm-hmm. Yet when we talk about fair trade and just like uh, ethical supply chain, that is also such a great. System and industry to do good because mm-hmm. it reaches so many people. So I think it's such an important topic to know the issues and how we can make a difference because it could literally impact millions of people. Absolutely. So we shared a- earlier with our listeners about how Fashion Revolution was birthed at the wake of the Rana Plaza collapse in 2013. But can you tell us a little bit more about the origins of the vision and the purpose of Fashion Revolution and how it has taken off since? Sure. Basically, Fashion Revolution, we kind of
2: work at the intersection like in the industry and outside the industry so we're not really like a watchdog group nor are we consultants for brands the real vision as we mentioned is transparency and that's kind of been like the foundation transparency leads to um accountability which then can lead to change so the main sort of benchmark project or so sort of report that fashion revolution does is called the fashion transparency index so that takes the top, I think, 250 brands now in terms of revenue and looks at what information is publicly available. Um, that way, you know, you can hold brands more accountable. If you're, are you telling us where, you know, your garments are made tier one, um, the majority of brands are doing that. But then if you're talking about tier two, where your fabrics are coming from down to tier four, which is our raw materials, do you even know who's growing your cotton or where, I mean, we know polyester is pulled from the ground in terms of um, crude oil. So understanding that transparency can lead to stronger changes is really the basis there. But a lot of the other work that we do is, yes, education. Fashion Revolution USA, we just partnered with Glasgow Caledonia and U.S. College, my alma mater, and created a four-credit course about data literacy, understanding how to interpret data as like any person in the fashion industry. So you're not greenwashing and just so you can understand what you're actually talking about and what's happening mm-hmm. in a company. So we, we do a lot of partnerships with different universities. We've worked with Northeastern University quite um, extensively. We have a s- summer schools, what we're calling it, in Greece this summer, where it's like a six-week course um, that they're traveling around to all different I- islands, um, learning about different processes there. So a lot of education, a lot of policy advocacy. Um, as I mentioned before, SB 62, which was the Garment Worker Protection Act. So we're really involved in calling the Senate Calling our policymakers, putting together letter writing campaigns, publicizing that these policies are out there, encouraging people to, you know, get up and vote, basically. So, yes, our, our we work on transparency, but we work on really activating citizens across the globe.
1: Yeah, it is so amazing around the end of April, around Fresh Revolution Week, how many people post on social media and really just use that platform to raise awareness too. And people might um, have seen throughout the years, people holding the sign, you know, who made our clothes and asking the brands. That's just such an amazing way that citizens have been able to help grow this movement.
2: Absolutely. It definitely was grassroots. It definitely started on social media in a way that, you know, democratizes communication. Like you're able to put out your own messaging and reach people directly without having to go through a magazine or a news website. So that's been really um, important for us to kind of grow, as you said, awareness, um, education and and get, you know, citizens involved.
1: Yeah. So I guess since 2013 till now, have you seen the fashion industry really change and respond? Like what are some of the changes you've seen since the fashion revolution movement began?
2: Sure. I mean, there's a lot of other groups and and activists that have, you know, paid attention to the fashion industry. That was a huge wake-up call. Um, in terms of you know, specifically from fashion revolutions point of view the fashion transparency index started i think it was 2016 it didn't start right away and it only looked at 100 brands now it's up to 250 and now we're seeing that the brands are measuring their own sustainability strategies against the grade i guess they get in the fashion transparency index they at first were not open to responding and working with us to understand like here here's this whole We'll call it a worksheet um, to understand, like, are you publishing your wages, so on and so forth. Now there's a lot more um, collaboration happening from the brand side. They take this seriously. So they really are paying attention to what they're doing but there's still, there's so much work still to be done. Yes, things have, have come together. There's a lot more of these voluntary commitments that have been put out there. Whether those really push a lot of change, at least it's always on the forefront. Um, I think of a lot of brands and you know the C-suite level that sustainability needs to be baked in to the way that they, they operate. But we are, we're unfortunately still far away from, I think, hitting a lot of these goals. But there's a lot more interaction, I, th- I think, and a lot more uh, awareness, at least. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be as positive as possible.
1: <laughs> I understand. There's so much that still needs to be done. Now, from your experience, have you witnessed like a major brand or retailer really shift the past few years? I'm curious.
2: Well, in terms of shifting, I guess we could talk, this is maybe more optic side of things, but uh, if you may not be aware, Boohoo Got in a lot of trouble. I think it was 2020. They had a factory, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Leicester in the UK. It's like Northern England, where they found you know a lot of like forced labor. Again, like wage theft. So they got in a lot of trouble. Um, Boohoo is one of these now uber fast fashion brands that like turn out um, products way quicker than our traditional fast fashion, which would be like your H and M's and Zara's. Um, But since that time they have appointed a head of sustainability. So at least, you know, that's happening internally um, in terms of the actual changes that they've made. I don't know if I I can be an expert to talk on that specifically, that would be one, I guess one example of a brand that at least has taken the negative, you know, externalities and try and are trying to make changes internally.
1: Yeah. We'll see where that goes. I, at least they're taking one step, you know, yeah. closer to sustainability. I mean, one thing that I've been amazed about, especially the past few years is seeing how target has adopted fair trade apparel. So it yeah. started with uh, fair trade denim, but now I see it even in you know, cotton and other things. So,
2: and that, um, and even though they're not producing everything perfectly, which no one is, an organization, a company like a target has such massive impact that even yeah. the adoption of a couple of these, you know, sustainable initiatives can have greater impact because they just affect so much because they have such large quantities so so those are positives even though maybe it's only let's say 10% of their business that would be the equivalent to maybe 400 ethical fashion brands doing the same thing in terms of impact so you have to think about things on scale so very happy to have seen Target adopt that as well
1: Yeah, I know like with, you know, the fair trade and fashion revolution, we support, we love small businesses, but yeah, I think in order to see that big shift in the Mm -hmm. industry, it really does take these big retailers and to really adopt this movement. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads me to that next question is, you know, when we think about and talk about fair trade, we often talk about coffee, chocolate or produce because those have a shorter supply chain than Mm -hmm. apparel. But recently we have seen a lot more fair trade labels on apparel um, and more fair trade fashion companies pop up. So can you tell us more about how fair trade has played a role in the fashion revolution movement or like the growing intersection between fair trade and fashion in recent years? Yeah, well, we've partnered with Fair Trade
2: for many years. We obviously mm-hmm. align on lots of different things, and and it really comes down to the labor, the side of things, mm-hmm. having Fair Trade certified manufacturers. So they're, mm-hmm. you know, you get that third party um, trust there that they're being paid living wages, there's good working conditions, and but the thing is that needs to happen kind of throughout the supply chain, as you mentioned. Food has a much shorter supply chain where fashion, I. don't even want to take a guess at how many different steps there are, but if you're just talking about the last leg of manufacturing, which would be cut and sewing of a garment, 100%, let's have that fair trade, but let's also make sure the mill that's producing the fabric is also fair trade. Um, so it can have really great positive impacts. And I know, and I, I know, As far as I know, actually, there Mm -hmm. are no fair trade textile manufacturers in the U.S., but I do know one that is working on it. So hopefully we can claim that very soon. There's not a ton of manufacturing in the U.S. other than basically Los Angeles, but I think that's maybe only 50,000 garment workers, something along those lines. But yeah, it can absolutely positively affect our industry.
1: Yeah, we just had a conversation with the Garment Worker Center, and obviously it's a big deal that they passed the Garment Worker Protection Act, but I would love to see some of these factories get that fair trade certification label in the U.S. Because people just assume like made in U.S. means sweatshop free, but it does not. So
2: unfortunately, it doesn't. No, no.
1: Sorry to interrupt, but we got to tell you this. Did you know that Fair Trade LA led the campaign that officially designated Los Angeles the largest fair trade city in North America and the fourth largest in the world? We are a nonprofit that exists because of the support from people like you. Become a Fair Trade LA monthly donor to ensure this educational content reaches as many people as possible. Go to slash donate to pledge your support. Thanks for letting me interrupt. Let's get back to the episode. I mean, talking about, you know, this big industry, I was wondering if you think that the current pace and the direction of the fashion industry right now is even sustainable.
2: No, (laughs) (laughs) it it is not sustainable. We're taking way too much from what we can, you know, put back in or help regenerate. And unfortunately, as I was mentioning before about Boohoo and this new uber fast fashion brands like are the Sheens, the misguided, the pretty little things. I think a couple of those are all under the boo umbrella. It's gotten even faster and is going to make wow. it even worse. We're talking about $7 shirts. Like where's the labor payment there?
0: Non-existent.
2: What are these materials that they're using? You know, if you smell your clothes, you're smelling chemicals. Probably weren't made in the safest way. They're not going to be safe for you, and they're not going to be safe for the garment workers or the people that were working with the textiles 12, 16 hours a day prior. So it's really, really concerning. There was an article in the New York Times maybe like three years ago. Everyone talks about you know, Gen Z is going to save us. Gen Z, it's all about sustainability. They- need to make sure they're working with purpose, um, which I would say that is true. But this article that the New York Times put out, they spoke to a couple of different Gen Z consumers, all, all female consumers. I think it was like in Australia and the UK and then here in the US to understand what they're buying and their shopping habits were. And all of them are you know, doing these hauls, they're buying, you know, 20 items of clothing for $100. Like they're the ones that are, I would say being taken advantage of by these uber fast fashion. Like once you I mean, it feels good to buy things. There's like a a serotonin, you know, is released in your brain. Like shopping makes you feel good only for maybe a short amount of time. But this is in this sort of um, negative feedback loop. Like the brands are creating the desire. Consumers are buying into it. And this relentless wheel of I need more. I need more. So unfortunately, I feel like the pace is quickening way too fast.
1: With social media and also the growing influencer culture, like, yes, it's all pushing us to want, you know, create even more of, oh, what's the latest trend and what do I need to buy into now? So actually, (laughs) yeah, and you often just wear it once and just get rid of it or the quality is so bad that, I mean, it don't even last. So I actually want to take a small step back because some of our listeners might not be as familiar with the whole fashion industry. So can you give us like a brief description of the difference between fast fashion and slow fashion?
2: Yes. In the simplest terms, so fast fashion is is putting out something maybe like 52 collections per year. So that means they're constantly constantly producing clothing. There was like a Shein article I read the other day and I think they added something like, 8,000 items of clothing a day or a week. It's something just so astronomical that you can't even like grasp how that works. Um, so fast fashion is just constant newness, constant new product, just always going after the dollar. Also fast fashion is produced very quickly, like from design to being available to buy online could be somewhere like three weeks, which is insane. Slow fashion literally slows down that entire process. A, it's made to last longer, be a little more timeless, more classic, less driven by trends, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of thought into where you're sourcing the raw material. So a lot of these brands are having relationships with the farmers who are, you know, raising sheep for wool and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. And that takes, a it takes a lot of time. So they're working very specifically with their supply chains, only producing, you know, maybe like a core collection, a couple of new styles, you know, once or twice a twice a year. So it's, definitely just slowing down the entire production process there and is also, you know, kind of indicative of living like a slower paced life. Like it's not all, all about churning new new outfits of the day, that sort of thing.
1: That is so important to distinguish. I remember growing up learning about the fashion industry and maybe there were four seasonal, you know, collections. Yes. Because there's four seasons. (laughs) And now it's like every week you're seeing this new trend and it's so unsustainable.
2: Right? Like um, when I started in the industry, yeah, there's four, four seasons, you showed four times a year, then you add on just a holiday season, Mm -hmm. just for holiday shopping. And now like the larger luxury brands are trying to compete with these fashion brands. So to keep more products going. So it has sped up that calendar as well. I would love to see a return to two seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter. That would be wonderful. And, And there are some designers and some brands that are producing more of these core collections with a couple of like new things sprinkled in there. It's just about being mindful of what you actually need what you want, and then kind of balancing yeah. that out. There's a great um, kind of like checkpoint. I think Livia Firth from EcoAge always says it. It's like, can you wear something 30 times? The hashtag's like 30 wears. Like if you buy something, think about it. Are you going to wear it 30 times? And then, then, yes, that's a yes. You know, you want to keep something with you, be able, it's quality over quantity, basically.
1: Yeah. One, watching the true cost. You'll learn a lot about the difference, that documentary, I'll put it in our show notes. But I was also reading about the term cost per wear. Mm, And that really changed my mindset behind clothing because, you know, slow fashion is about investing in quality pieces, timeless pieces. And yes, they are generally more expensive because you're actually paying people fairly. It's actually good quality. But When you think about the cost per wear, like if you're actually going to wear this for whatever, five, 10 years, it'll last. Like that means that each time you wear it, it makes it more cost effective. Absolutely. Versus fast fashion, if it's like terrible quality, so it only lasts a few washes and Mm -hmm. you're trying to chase this trend. So once this trend is over, this piece is no longer useful. Then the cost per wear becomes so much more expensive. That totally changed my mindset behind investing in quality pieces.
2: Yeah, no, I know exactly what it was. I don't recall what it was. It might have been an episode of Sex in the City where I think <laughs> I first learned about like cost per wear. Like, well, these are five hundred dollars shoes, but I'm going to wear them, and <laughs> it won't be as expensive. I don't remember if it was Sex in the City or not. That's what I was like. That's a great way <laughs> to quantify yeah. that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great way to think about it.
1: And now that I've worn fair trade and just organic cotton clothing. I can't go back. You could just feel the difference on your body.
2: You can feel, and especially, I I don't wanna rip on um, vintage clothing, but like in the 60s and 70s, that was when polyester really came about. Um, I love, I shop majority vintage, but you can tell the difference when you're wearing something polyester Versus when you're wearing a natural material, like cotton, linen, any of those things, your body can literally breathe through the fabric.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I just can't go back. So, okay. Now let's talk about future. Now, you know, what do you hope to see in the future of the fashion industry? And are you hopeful that we can make it happen? Yes, I
2: am hopeful. That's what I was trying to always try to keep a positive outlook or else what are we really trying to do? Um, I think that that with a lot of like activists, a lot of environmentalists, you do kind of run into this eco-anxiety. If you're constantly thinking about the negatives, there are so many organizations and so many people that aren't even maybe working in these fields that are pushing for these changes really to happen. So yes, I am very hopeful. Um, I'm still in the, I would say, beginnings-ish of my career. So I have some decades left that I'm, you know, really looking forward to making even more impact. I think what I would really, really like to see, and this is one of the hardest things that everyone talks about, is slowing down production. Mm -hmm. However, that is a private business operation. Um, I think the only way that we can affect that change is, through policy. And I've really, I've really come to terms with that over the past couple of years. If we're, I think there's like a quota, like from imports from China, if it's on, if the box is like worth less than $800, there's no tariffs. So they're trying to kind of eliminate some of those caps. So then you're, you're putting a cost on the cheap imports Mm. that sort of makes sense. So, and there are so many policies, like you have the EU Green Deal, all these other like side policy proposals of like the sustainable circular textiles. Sustainable chemistry, the EU due diligence um, directive—I think—is what it's called—that are coming into play that are really trying to cap the industry. Like the fashion industry is one of the least regulated, mm-hmm. um, and you know, like we mentioned before, we had the Garment Worker Protection Act, which hopefully will be going federal. Hopefully, will be pr- um, introduced as a federal law or yeah. policy proposal. Um, We have the New York Fashion Act. There's a lot of policy coming into play. And I think that that's what kind of like the main ship everyone's jumping on, because we've realized that we've been trying to do this privately through business for a long time, which there has been some really great innovations and movements from private business. But we have got to like even the playing field here and make sure it's not only a few good players that are making these changes when there's a lot of the other she ends out there that are getting away with murder basically um so that's what i'm very hopeful for
0: yeah
1: and hopeful that you know this grassroots movement led by people can show not just businesses but the government that we demand this you know we demand this absolutely
2: that was really i think one of the main reasons why the garment worker protection act went through we hosted so many letter writing like campaigns and we heard from like you know the, the governor's office that there was a stat, like stacks of these letters talking about you need to pass this and it was like their number one priority citizens really push this through and make sure that the governor signed it and made sure it's in front of him. So yeah, it, it's definitely all hands on deck. And there's so much that you can do as a private citizen too. Wow.
1: It's amazing. That's why we need to have more of these conversations to raise yeah. awareness and educate people about this topic. So here's a fun question for you. What is your personal favorite brand or go-to brand to buy Fair Trade Fashion? Oh no. Um,
2: <laughs> I'm prepared for this one. Um, what I did recently, and this made me so happy is like J. Crew and Madewell. They have a lot of products that are fair trade. I didn't really feel comfortable buying from them a few years ago, mm-hmm. um, but I recently bought like a, a puffer jacket that was made from all recycled materials and in a fair trade factory. And I wow. was super, super happy about that. Um, because I know we also talk about a lot of, you know, more ethical, sustainable brands or very expensive. Like I, you know, I'm not shopping those all the time either. Um, So bringing all of those positive qualities of, you know, fair labor, you know, more sustainable materials to a price point that people can't afford I think is something that's very important. So I'll stop there because I don't want
1: to. <laughs> yeah, no, those are great. We were in the fair trade world. We were so excited when they jumped on board um, mm-hmm. J. Crew and Madewell and committed to fair trade denim. Like, I mean, that's a big deal.
2: It is a really big deal. Yes. Yes. So I'll
1: I'll go with that one. Yeah, that's great. Um, And then we want to end every episode asking our guests this question because we Mm -hmm. want people to walk away with just simple steps and simple tools that they could use to be more ethical in their shopping. So what is one thing our listener can do to help create a fairer, more equitable world, maybe specifically in the fashion industry?
2: Sure. Well, I, I think I touched on this before is we're not talking about food and only, you know, buying food. If you need food, because you need that. We're talking about fashion and understanding first, like the reasons why you're shopping, like, is this something that you need? We always um, kind of talk about this buyer hierarchy of needs, kind of based on like Pavlo's um, hierarchy of needs where you know, the most basic is wear what's already in your closet, swap or thrift, buy things from that, and then at the top of that pyramid, focus on buying from small, sustainable, ethical brands. I mean, we're speaking to fair trade here. So I think the easiest thing that you can do is look for fair trade labels within, within clothing at, and at brands that you already shop at. And I think that's just super, super easy. There's a couple other like certifications too that you can trust. But when we're talking about fair labor, that's really the gold star, the gold star, in, in my opinion. I think it's just being more conscious and and slowing down a little bit. And and I hate to say, like, the onus is on the consumer to learn about all of these different things. It should really be, you don't have to think about this. Everything is made fairly. But until we're at that point, you need to sort of recognize, I think, some of these third-party certifications that you can trust and shop that way.
1: Yeah. And I know that, uh, fashion revolution has ton of toolkits for consumers. So I'm going to, I'll make sure to include these links in the show notes because I know there's tons of resources out there, but I think that's an important call to action, you know, especially for fashion, like careful what you buy
2: (laughs) exactly and and speaking of those um toolkits you know at the simplest level it's using your social media platform to you know draw attention to a brand ask a brand you know with the hashtag who made my clothes you tag the brand brands pay attention to that they have really big social media departments and if they're getting people like asking them this they're going to have like a moment of pause like okay so we're getting you know, some attention here. What are what are we doing? Who is making our clothing? How can we expose that and also improve that? So, using the pow- your power of social media, I mentioned this before. As we don't call them consumers because we're more than just what we buy. We're citizens. So, getting involved and you know, voting for different policy, voting a in general, and then helping to advocate advocate for any policies in your state or federally. By writing, you know, lawmakers, we have templates on, on fashionrevolution.org that you can download, plug in your lawmakers information, email that to them, print it, mail it to them, can tweet at them. There's there's so many other ways to to kind of you know activate yourself and bring attention to the issues that concern you.
1: Yeah. And if people need inspiration on how to post feel free to check out in social media, Fashion Revolution and Fashion Revolution USA. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people has been using the hashtag who made my clothes and tagging their brands. And that's such an important way to show these brands, you know, our consumer demand. Exactly. Consumer demand. Yeah, it's a great resource. Well, thank you. This has been an amazing conversation and I'm so excited to share all this information with our community.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy. I'm happy to then share any insights I have.
1: Thank you. And we will definitely keep in touch. We all want to make sure that fair trade and you know
0: the fashion industry continue to grow together. Absolutely. I want to thank the creative team behind the Fair Talks podcast. Our executive producer, Juliette Bucurel, our editor, Paula Park, and our marketing team, Jasmine French, Elena Alcero, and Lizzie Case. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fair Talks podcast. Thank you for being a part of our community and sharing the Fair Trade message. Thank you again to our sponsor Fair Trade USA for making this possible. Now, are you ready to create change? The next time you're out shopping, just pick up one Fair Trade item to buy like coffee, chocolate or bananas and make a difference. Ask your office, church, business, school or your family to shop more fair. If you have any questions or want to learn more, head over to fairtradela.org podcast for show notes, discount codes, and additional resources. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And follow us on social media at fairtradela to join our amazing community of fair trade lovers. Tune in to our next Fair Talks conversation to hear more life-changing stories. Thanks for listening.